0: Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. You are in the cave. We were born before the wind, also younger than the sun. And our bonnet boat was one as we sailed into the mist. The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of churchland. Welcome. Let your soul and spirit fly as sailed into the mystic. Mm.
1: Phil. I'm not going to let a bully us anymore. My father-in-law is a bully.
0: Phil. I hate bullies. Because a bully doesn't just beat you up. He takes away your dignity. Phil! I hate that. I really
1: hate that. Uh, Sorry.
0: We all may have resonated with Phil's sentiment in the movie City Slickers as he held a gun to the forehead of a bully. We may even have wished he'd pulled the trigger. But resilience says we're bigger than our bullies, and we don't have to live our lives in fear as if the bullies were still in control. There is, deep within all of us, a spirit of resistance, a resourcefulness, of indomitable strength, it's part of our spiritual heritage, our arsenal, if you will, on the unknown path. We barely even know it's there until we fall beneath the crushing weight of a bully's threats. And then, rising up, there it is, our resilience. Louise Gallagher was already a survivor, the single mother of two teenaged girls and a force to be reckoned with in her chosen profession as a communications consultant. Then she met the man she calls in her memoir, Peter. He swept her off her feet, promised her the world, and in return for her loyalty, took away everything she had, except, that is, for one thing, love." An abusive relationship, Louise writes in her memoir called The Dandelion Spirit, is like standing on the road while a semi-trailer comes barreling towards you. Blinded by the light, you are frozen in place and cannot move. You can't believe the truck won't stop. You can't believe it will hit you. But it does. And then it keeps on going. Caught beneath it, You are dragged along until you no longer know up from down, right from wrong, truth from lies. With every breath, your courage evaporates as quickly as the rushing wheels carry you away from who you are and what you once believed to be true. This is a story about terror and humiliation. But it's also a story about spiritual resilience The capacity to recover from adversity, to get up off the asphalt, dust yourself off, and walk back into your life. It's the story about the ferocious life force that burns within us all. It is, of course, Louise's story, but it could also be our own. So, Louise, it was my great privilege to uh, read your memoir, The Dandelion Spirit, which chronicles your experience of a four-and-a-half-year-long abusive relationship. And at first, when I read it, I felt such anger that this man, who you call Peter in the memoir, was so calculatingly able to attach you to himself. And in the process, you could just see, as you describe it, because because you write so well, you could see your spirit diminishing, diminishing, diminishing. So that's how, it, at first, it was about Peter. And I, at least my emotional reaction was to Peter. But then, as you pressed on in the memoir, never flinching, I must say, from the painful details, my attention was drawn more and more away from him toward you. And what I saw, of course, was the slow emergence of the Louise that I know. So do you believe that you, the Louise that we know, was in fact there all along, even though, even through the darkest times, the L- Louise who is strong and loving and resourceful and ultimately an inspiration to others, was she still in there somewhere all that time?
1: I believe she was in there. I just think that she disappeared and yeah. I lost all connection to her, even though she was within me. I, I, you know, I think that's what an abusive relationship does. It, it, yeah. it puts you into such a dark corridor that you can't see yourself. All you can see are these lies that you've learned to believe about yourself that yeah. he has told you.
0: Yeah. And yet, going into it, um, you seemed to be uh, a lively, hopeful person, and certainly idealistic, which may have been part of, of what happened. So, what happened in in the early part of that relationship that the Louise we know did recede? Like, how how did that happen?
1: Well, fear was a big part of it, right? That was a fear, huge yeah. fear game, and yeah. because there was so much of it that was centered around the story he told me about my daughter's lives being in danger. And that, you know, he, and this is true of many abusive personalities, they gather information about someone, and then they use Mm -hmm. that information to take down their defenses, their natural, healthy defenses. So, you know, in the case for me, I was working with street teens. I was writing these plays, and I was doing all this work with street teens. So he knew that I knew a lot about that life, particularly teen prostitution, and what yeah. have you, and so that became his ammunition, and he used that to to create terror, and that really is what I will never forget the night he called at, you know, 1 a.m. and said, you know, I've received three bullets and photos of a young girl being violated by a group of men, yes. Yeah, and that's what will happen to your daughters if you say anything, and I remember that night, because I just, I sat in bed after the call, which had woken me up, Yeah. And I sobbed and I just froze. And I know I froze. Yes. Like, I felt myself freeze. Yeah. And in that freezing, I became more an object of his. But yeah. I was very adept. Like, and that was the other piece, Brian. I was very adept at using my smile to keep people away. I mean, that was mm-hmm. my, that was a modus operandi before I met him.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because... So... So this became a private hell yes. that you could mask on the outside.
1: Yeah. 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 And I masked that, it well.
0: Yeah, That particular story, of course, the listener wouldn't appreciate that if they haven't read the memoir, um, had to do with this whole fabrication of his ex-wife and, and uh, allusions to a criminal family. He was caught up and he, and he never told you the details. He said, just trust me, I'm, I'm working this out. But he gave you enough details of the fabrication, like you just said, the three bullets, like the call at night, to keep you in his thrall. Yeah. And, and, right?
1: Yeah, and then he did the little things that reinforced that he knew, right? He knew everything that was going on. Like, you know, when he would yeah. call and say, wow, I love the red beret you're wearing today. And yet he's supposed to be in California, and I'd just be like... In
0: a hospital, he's supposed yeah, to be dying. I know,
1: and I'm like, <laughs> like, how do you know I'm wearing a red beret? But, yeah. you know, and all of those little pieces just kept add, adding more and more fuel to the fear, that the abject yeah. terror, because it wasn't fear, it was abject terror yeah. that I lived with. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You were drawn into the lies and the, and the fabrication, and you didn't want—I mean, as much as you would have wanted not to believe what he was saying—it's like you couldn't separate yourself from the lies. Is that right? Like, so you became a part of this huge fabrication that he had created.
1: Oh yeah, I was just—you know—I was one of the puppets in the dance, and—and yeah. and, you know—and and to have tested whether it was true or not, just—I—I I, I just felt it put my daughters at such enormous risk. I knew what it was like to be a teen prostitute. I knew what it was like to live on the streets. I knew what happened to these kids, and I could not risk it. I I just, I couldn't, and I felt like I violated that very sacred trust of being a mother. Yeah,
0: and we'll we'll come back to that because actually, that your tie with your daughters ended up to be significant in your return to health. But let's not get there yet. You talk about. What you call magical thinking—the mm-hmm. princess meeting the you know the prince, uh, the knight on his white charger—that is that what you mean by magical thinking? A sort of a fantasy that we we can live into, which keeps us from seeing the truth.
1: Yeah, I mean, what woman doesn't want to be swept off her feet? You know, it's yeah. it's a lovely myth. And by a man in a red Ferrari. I know, <laughs> and it was hot and it was fast and yeah. and and. And what woman doesn't want to hear how amazing and beautiful and intelligent and how, you know, she's just so incredible. I mean, it was lovely. And it came at a time in my life when I was vulnerable. And that yeah. was the other piece. I, like, I was vulnerable. And in that I, you know, I'd ended a, a, a long-term relationship with a man that I was just madly in love with. But his bipolar, which was untreated, just made it... Mm-hmm too challenging. And so I was in this vulnerable state and here rolls in this guy who's going to take care of me and wants to do all these things. I'm a single mom with two girls and, you know, I've got a, a good life, but wow, yeah. you know, like this guy wants to make all my dreams come true. But the other yeah. piece of it, Brian, which is the, was the interesting piece was that he also, through all these promises, got me to question like how good was my life? Like, uh, like, yeah. maybe I'm not doing such a good job as I thought, right? Maybe yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm not providing for my daughters as well as I could. Yeah. And, and, oh, well, maybe I'm not as happy. Maybe I'm not, <laughs> you know, and so I began to question the underpinnings of my own essence. Yeah. Because he painted this picture of, wow, I could be all of this.
0: Yeah. But he also said, leave it to me. Oh yeah. Like I'll do it all. Yeah. I'll uh, don't don't you worry. Don't ask any questions and you will get the life. Like there was So you actually began whether or not you were aware of it, you began giving up mm-hmm. parts of yourself, oh, right? Yeah. Is it? Yeah. So just so that people get the sense of scale of loss cuz we're going to talk we're going to talk about the light. <laughs> but I think to appreciate that people need to realize what you lost. Um, over that four and a half years. So can you talk about some of the things that you lost?
1: Well, maybe I'll just go to where and I got out of it, what I had, because that's so much easier yeah. to say than what I lost. I had 72 cents in my pocket. I had a yeah. few clothes. I had a suitcase. Yeah. Um, and I had my golden retriever. Yeah. And that was what I had left. And, you know, along with all of the belongings, the home, the career, all of that stuff, I had totally lost my daughters.
0: Yeah. In the sense of they grew alienated from you.
1: It's interesting. They weren't so much alienated, but they were living in fear because the last Mm -hmm. four months of that journey, I disappeared. Not just mentally and emotionally. I disappeared physically. So I lost... I lost that connection, which was so vital to me. Yeah. And so, yeah, I lost my home, my life savings, my job. I mean, it was all stuff that I lost. Yeah. And I don't want to jump to the light, but I always want to jump to the light. Um, of course. <laughs> you know, but what I got out of it was even greater than what I lost in the end.
0: In the end. Yes. Yeah. So in your in your TED Talk, which I would recommend for people to look it up your ted talk which you did here in calgary you begin with an image of the river mm-hmm. now you and and the man we call peter uh were in a sense on the lamb mm-hmm. he was he was trying to avoid uh, arrest he was figuring out how to get out of the country he was saying to you uh when he goes you'd be free or maybe not maybe he'd take you with him and um the picture of the river that was outside of the place you were renting in British Columbia was, it presented an option. It presented the option for you, as you say in that talk, of slipping into the river and disappearing. Mm-hmm. Like, you were, you were at that point, but you didn't disappear. You didn't slip into the river, and I wonder what prevented you.
1: Two things. One, I'll start with the one that was closest to me at that moment in time, and that was Ellie, my golden retriever. I couldn't leave her along with him because I didn't know what he did. Mm -hmm. And then the other one was the one truth that I still had. Because everything else in my life was a lie by that point. Everything. I was the lie. I was the big lie. But there was one truth I held on to, and that is I love my daughters. And I could not make a lie of that truth by taking my own life. And I'd made them a promise at one point um, towards the end before I disappeared that I wouldn't do anything to hurt myself. I'd made them that promise and I couldn't break that promise. That was the part of the sacred trust of being a mother that I could not break even though I desperately wanted to.
0: There was also a part of you that you describe, as things just got worse and worse down this dark, awful rabbit hole there was a part of you that was started to wait for the moment when he would actually leave because he was planning his departure. Mm-hmm. And so you were looking for, you were no longer thinking you would go with him if you could avoid it. He would go away and you would have your life back. So there was a part of you holding up that tiny little bit of hope that, okay, make your plans buster, get on your boat, <laughs> you know, sail away and I'm a I'm a free woman. And then as you were holding on to that, and then the day came when it happened and and it happened l- like well, you tell us how did that last day you were rent you were on the lamb, you were in this rented place, and suddenly you were free. Tell me about that
1: Well, it was a beautiful May morning <laughs> it was you know the birds were singing. River was flowing, the light was dancing on the river, and you know, it, I used to always tell my daughters stories about the fairy dancers, and they're the ones who dance on the water when the sunlight, hmm. when you see them, mm-hmm. and you know, and uh, and that was one of the many many moments when I stood by the river and wished I could unhook gravity and just let yeah. my body fall in, uh, and 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 I remember I just thinking, well, oh, again, I not I, I can't even do that, so I'm I turned away from the river and I was walking back towards this this room where he was sleeping and a police car, an RCMP car drove up into the driveway and these two officers got out and asked me if he was there. And I said, yeah, he's upstairs sleeping. And I led them up to where he was and they took him away. And then I fell apart. (laughs) I was catatonic. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well well yeah. and and before we get to that there even you describe it it's very vivid mm-hmm. in your memoir where one of the the officers is dealing with him mm-hmm. taking him away the other is trying to get your help yeah. to get his wallet to, you know whatever and it seemed like you kind of froze cuz now you're you're caught between these two worlds yeah. and and well just say a bit about that because it the sense of shock comes through that
1: yeah oh I <laughs> I mean I it was it was just it was it was I was frozen but I was frozen in, because yeah. everything felt so surreal like I I felt like I was yeah. up in the corner of the room watching this play unfold of which yeah. I am a main character just as much as he is and it's all happening and and these two officers are there and I am watching and I remember just You know, rocking back and forth and back and forth, trying to, like, just trying to keep myself from, I thought I would just fly off. Like, I just thought, you know, if any, that I could, I would just be like a wave of a wand and I would disappear. And, 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 and they're going through the motions and I am not even capable of going through the motions because I am still just trying to fathom that somebody's taking him away. I, yeah. he's been taken away yeah. and if he's taken away and I am just an appendage of him mm-hmm. what happens to me I think was yeah. like there was this sense that I didn't know who I was anymore I didn't know
0: yeah
1: I didn't have an identity yeah and so it was this moment of sheer panic and yeah. and sheer just confusion consternation and then yeah. just this holy shit, like yeah, what happens next?
0: and and who am I? Yeah. The, 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 the guy around whom you had built your life for four and a half years now is gone, and who's left behind now what's interesting is, because this tells a story of its own in terms of how healing happens. you didn't in that moment. You know, uh, get in the car. Well, the car t- had turned out to be stolen, so you couldn't anyway. You didn't make your way back to Calgary to reunite with your daughters. Instead, you stayed with your sister mm-hmm. in North Vancouver, and you took time. There was a period of incubation, it felt like to me, to do what?
1: You know, the, the one thing I knew I needed to do, Brian, was find a way to help my daughters heal. And I knew, like, I knew I was broken. I yeah. knew I was com- Completely broken and so I had to find the pieces of myself that would serve me well and let go yeah. of the ones they wouldn't because I also knew that my daughters were angry that was inevitable yeah, yeah. I also knew they had a right to their anger and their you know yeah. it wasn't and that if I had gone back right then and there I would just want to take their anger away from them and then I wouldn't focus on healing me which yeah. was the only way I knew I could help them heal, that I had to be strong enough yeah. to be in a space with them that what they could express their anger and I wouldn't try to own it.
0: Yeah.
1: And, you know, I had to take care of me first, which was hard. I mean, there were moments when I just wanted to go, I've got to go back. I have yeah. to go back to them. But I also knew that was the weak me talking, like the strong yeah. me, the mother who knew what was the right Thing to do, yeah. That mother knew that she had to build herself back before she could help her daughters.
0: So, what were the parts? What were the component parts that made up for your healing? Your, your when you started healing, because um, you had a place to stay with mm-hmm. your sister, so at least you that was covered. Did you seek therapy, counseling? Uh, what, what did? How did you begin to unpack? the horror of those four years four and a half
1: years so i did i did seek counseling but probably the space that gave me the most healing was through writing and there at the time this was before I think it was before facebook even but there were these groups online and you could join a group for you know people with eating disorders like there were all sorts of groups and i yeah. stumbled into this room of a group for people who've been involved in relationships with psychopaths. Huh. And I walked, uh-huh. I walked in, my fingertips yeah, yeah. walked me into <laughs> yeah, this yeah. room. And I started reading, and I thought, oh my, oh my, I I'm not alone. And uh-huh. I'm not crazy. Yeah. like the people do these things. I think it yeah. was the, the the piece of the power that he had over me was that. I always believed in the goodness of, of humankind. I always did. Yeah. And, and um, I used to tell my daughters, it's not about, you know, being a good girl because inherently you are good human beings. We are all good. That, that we're human beings.
0: Yeah. It's yeah. about
1: our behavior. Yeah. And, and I didn't believe in evil. And he set out to prove me wrong. And wow. he did. But in learning yeah. that evil truly exists, I was stronger. Right? So that was yeah. the magical thinking. I didn't want to believe in evil. And then I realized, no, there is evil out there in the world, but it doesn't have to win. Yeah. And so from the healing perspective, walking into this, this room where there were other people with similar experiences, that yeah. I could say some of the crazy-making things that had gone on and not yeah. feel like an idiot or a yeah. fool or like people were looking at me as if I had two heads yeah. Um, was healing in and of itself. And then yeah. the, being able to write it out was yes. healing in and of itself. And then to be able to write to support other people in their healing by sharing my own strength, courage, and story experience was yeah. healing.
0: Yeah. And that's very much a part of your story that we'll see even more as we, as we go on that, that um, part of your identity seems to be wrapped up with how can i be useful to other people Mm -hmm. like and so it's your volunteer work which is what you talk about uh in part in the ted talk um but also the very work that you took on because you you were a communications consultant Mm -hmm. when you eventually returned to calgary you put that to work with in the not-for-profit area because so it was still a sense of how can I be of service to others in the best sense? That was part of your healing because you you were useful. You could be useful to others.
1: Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I like being of service. I like living like I feel like I'm living on purpose. I like that sense of feeling I have a purpose. And I also know, Brian, that my healing was very, very different from the path many people take. Okay. And yeah. and we talked about this the other day. When, when I woke up the morning after he was arrested, I'm not sure I actually slept that night. I think I mostly cried through the night. Yeah. <laughs> but
0: yeah.
1: um, I pulled out a notebook and started to write. And I made the conscious decision in the very first paragraph that, yeah, this was going to be hard work. But it didn't have to kill me. That relationship didn't kill me. And the only way I could heal was to do it through love. And I had to consciously choose that. And I wasn't going to do it through anger. I also knew at that moment in time I wasn't strong enough to carry anger. I wasn't strong enough to carry all of the negativity of it. I was, you know, I had, I mean, I had to go to a place where the only thing that would restore me was love.
0: Now, did that include him, love of him?
1: I'm not sure I ever got to love of him, but forgiveness of him and praying for him a miracle, that I was good with. That, that was, you know, I will pray for him a miracle because I know that only a miracle will actually save him from the behaviors that have created such chaos in his life and such pain. And that is part of that personality type.
0: Yeah. And I hear that actually in the context of your healing as a way of distancing from him. You're no longer part of him. You're far enough away that you can say, well, I I pray for a miracle for him because yeah. that's all that's going to save him, right? Yeah. But tell me, there must also have been enormous anger, rage somewhere in there for everything he had taken from you had taken your life for your for. So how did you process that? While still holding on to the notion of love
1: so uh, i <laughs> I did different things, so one of the things, and this was part of what i would I used to tell other people in similar situations was I had to practice no contact with him.
0: yes now yes. he had
1: no way of contacting me. he didn't have my sister's telephone number, it was unlisted yeah. um, so and I had no cell phone anymore, and so he had no way of contacting me, yeah and so. But I had to practice no contact with him in my head because thoughts of him wanted to just keep coming in. And and I remember one of my daughters asking me one day, well, what about this when he promised this or did this? And was that true or a lie? And I said, you know, there is absolutely zero sense in trying to, you know, cull through all the lies to find germs of truth. He is the lie.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's enough to know. He is the lie. Now let's, Let's focus on who's really important, and that's you, yeah. me, and your sister. Like, we're yeah. the important ones here, and he is the lie. The truth yeah. is love. I love you. That's the truth. Yeah. And, and that, for me, was how I kept, you know, I had to keep thoughts of him out of my head. So I had, in my head, I had this yeah. imaginary stop sign And I Mm -hmm. would, you know, if the thought of him came in, I would just put my stop sign up in my mind. Oh, right. And that would just remind me, okay, let's go back to thoughts that are healing. Because thoughts of him were not healing. And that included even the anger and the rage and all of that. Particularly in the beginning. Because I just wasn't strong enough to deal with those emotions. So I just, I I would put these imaginary signs up in my head. Stop. Stop. And then I go back to thinking of or doing one thing that would heal me that day. And it really was one baby step at a time, one little you know, piece. And everything I had to do had to, you know, had to answer the question, is this the most loving thing I can do for myself in this moment?
0: That's see, that's that's really an important uh, qualification about the love uh, the, the love for myself cuz you were that's that you were rebuilding from the inside out and it had to begin with loving yourself yeah because in truth he hadn't loved you nope. oh, God and not. for for all those for all that time you were together and now uh, Anything that got in the way of love for yourself. It's just so interesting to hear you say, including anger for him, that would just put you back in his world. Mm -hmm. Now you're trying to make yourself feel better in relation to him as opposed to, no, he's history. I pray for a miracle for him. And I'm moving on. God, but if it feels... But then, so you're trying to get rid of him in your mind, and then he pops up in the flesh. (laughs) He has actually done some time. He's now out. And in fact, he reappears in your life.
1: Mm-hmm. So that particular night when I was you know, walking back from where I parked my car to the girlfriend's house where I was staying, and he was, you know, it's interesting. I, I always think of it as it's like it is a, one of a woman's worst fears Yeah, is to have someone jump out from the bushes. Yeah. And I think the practicing the stop signs in my head gave me the courage when he jumped out and said, I have to talk to you. And I remember him saying my name, Louise. And all I could do was just say no and scream and run. It is the only thing I could do. And it is the one time I was really grateful my girlfriend never locked her front door. But believe me, she locked it from then on. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, and... And I remember racing into her house and she comes running down the stairs to the front door and I'm just in this mess of sobbing and shaking yeah. because I have just the devil has just popped out of the bushes and said, I want you back. And I had to say, I ain't going back.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, I have started moving forward. And so I you know, the police came and they all of the the Hawks aircraft and they they caught him yeah. that time, and he went back to prison. Yeah. And so the first time he was in, you know, in court, I had been asked if I wanted to write a victim impact statement, and I had declined. I thought, no, nope, he is out of my life. I don't even want to go back and relive those things. I You know, I don't care yeah. what happens to him. He is out of my life, and the only person yeah. who can keep him out of my life is me. Yeah. And so... I did nothing that time, but this time when he went back to prison, and uh, I had then moved back to Calgary, I was asked if I wanted to write a victim impact statement, and I chose to do it, because I decided that, again, this was about me. Not writing it the first time was about me, but it was also a bit about him, too, because I, you know, he still Mm. had power over me if I couldn't confront him, but I hadn't realized it at the time. This time, I was willing to write that statement because he had no power over me. Mm -hmm. And I was not willing to give him any. But it really became about speaking my truth without being attached to the outcome of what happens to him. Yeah. Because the outcome for me was I spoke my truth. Yeah. One other piece to the healing, which I still do to this day, and that was the throwing eggs.
0: Oh, that's right. Yes. (laughs) Okay, tell us about throwing eggs. Okay.
1: So when my daughters were little when they were you know cuz they're they're only 18 months apart and they'd bicker and fight and so i would give them a dozen eggs and say okay go throw the eggs at the fire pit and get it out or go and you know there were trees behind our house go to the trees and throw the eggs they're they're environmental you know the animals will eat them there but it gets the energy out so one of the things i started to do after he was arrested is i would start writing stuff on eggs that i was upset about and then i just yeah throw the eggs and I'd have to accept that I was throwing it away. And and for me, it's a very physical yeah. expression of what I'm throwing away. And so I just throw these eggs. And then the last one, I would just hold in my hand and then turn my hand over to teach myself that letting go is pretty easy. Like, you know, you just turn yeah, your hand yeah. over and it falls out and smashes. Yeah. And so the throwing eggs became for me sort of a, you know, because in a relationship like this, the, yeah. a, wo- a woman or a man, because it can happen to men too, but primarily it happens to women. Um, you feel like you're walking on eggshells, yeah. And so the eggs became very symbolic of, yeah, I'm I'm walking on eggshells and I don't give a shit. Yeah. Right? And in
0: fact, you were dropping them into a gully or in down oh, a yeah. ravine or something. <laughs> mean, awesome. It was quite graphic. <laughs> and I want to say that the the egg marketing board of Alberta thanks you because I. <laughs> <laughs> there were probably a lot of eggs that met their death.
1: <laughs> oh, yes. And I've, you know, I've used it with uh, friends who are trying to get through things. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I just say, yeah, let's go take some eggs and let's go up to Nose Hill Park and let's sit and write on them and we'll just throw them. And yeah. it's a great way to release stuff. So the eggs became important.
0: And there were a number of ways that you explored that were helpful, not only for you, that have turned out to be helpful for others and perhaps countless others. So partly the writing of the memoir itself, but then also the writing in your blog, when you began writing your blog.
1: So when I started the first blog, and the very first blog I started was in 2007, and it was called Recover Your Joy.
0: Hmm.
1: And the reason for the title was I'd done all this healing, but I was still, I, I you know, I knew that there was still a space where I had you know was still struggling to find the joy that deep deep joy that i felt before and the the way that that experience informed a lot of what i wrote was that it it was never about the reason for the title was whatever i had to write or whatever i wrote had to be from an experience and whatever the experience i had to find the joy mm. that came with it i had to find the value because mm-hmm. every experience has something to teach me, something for me to grow yeah. through. And yeah. so I, I had to always come to the end to find the joy.
0: Okay, tell me about She Persisted. Mm. <laughs> and, and think of listeners who won't know what that means.
1: Okay. So if you recall in 2017 when the former president was in the White House, whose name I do not like to say, um... When he was in the White House, uh, Senator Mitch McConnell had shut down Senator Elizabeth Warren in the Senate uh, with the words, uh, she was told, nevertheless, she persisted. She was warned, Mm -hmm. she was told, and nevertheless, she persisted. And I remember reading that, and I was... Incensed. That first of all, that in such an august establishment, somebody could be so rude. And that, you know, I, I did have that sense of despair that what was happening in the world seemed to be filled with unkindness. And yeah. I don't like unkindness. I, I yeah. really like kindness. And it's something, you know, my mother, that was her big thing was kind. Be kind. Yeah. And, and I wanted to express my solidarity with Elizabeth Warren and with women and with men as well, with, co- you know, with, with the allies, yeah. that there is, there's no space for being rude and unkind in this world. It's, it's just not appropriate. And so I sat down one day at my studio table and I created this one painting mm-hmm. and I thought, Oh, that's cool. And it, you know, it said, you know, she persevered, yeah. uh, whatever, you know, she was, you know, They said, sit down. They said, shut up. They said, you know, don't talk. She spoke up. She persisted. And so I did that one painting and I thought, oh, that's cool. And then the next day, this little voice, which is how the muse talks to me, it's like this little whisper in my head, like a stream running through it. And uh, she said, oh, there's another one. They told her to sit down. She stood up. So I went back to my studio and I painted another and then I and I put the words,
0: yeah.
1: And I thought, oh, that's cool. Two of them, neat. And then a third one appeared, and I thought, okay, fine. I'll listen to this one, and but and maybe I'll do twelve, and I'll have one per month, and I can do a calendar. Cool. Yeah, be really cool. So I did the twelve, but this voice kept persisting, <laughs> and she mm. persisted until eventually I now have a collection of eighty-seven paintings yeah. in the yeah. persistence, which is bizarre. And they have, and they are, in essence, my rebellion. But I'm not a, you know, a placard-bearing, you know, marching through the snow and, you know, in the crowds kind of rebellion person. I am a quiet stream. I want to do it my way.
0: And not so quiet when somebody (laughs) sees those pieces of art. I remember we wanted to buy more (laughs) because you were now producing them as cards. And kind of postcards, and and uh, my wife and I thought these are great. Like we've got to have more of these. So they were in fact incendiary yeah. <laughs> for other people in the best sense of. Damn right she persisted. Damn right <laughs> that you were in fact doing your bit to awaken something in the in the people who would have seen those cards.
1: Yes. And those and hands. that was the point. You know what yeah. I wanted to do was to awaken people not through hitting them over the head. But by saying, here's the obvious people, like you said, I can't live my dreams. I say, oh, yes, I can. Watch me.
0: Yeah.
1: And that, you know, those limits that we want to put on people are unjust. And the only way that we can combat the unjust injustice or the unjust nature of those limits is by doing the very thing we're told not to do. Yeah. Yeah. As long as it doesn't hurt other people. I mean, that's, that's yeah. the caveat, right? It's to create yeah. better.
0: But interesting that now that it has changed mm-hmm. just recently. Uh, she's no longer persisting. Now she's daring boldly. Yeah. And, and is this a new art series? Is this going to be a new series?
1: Yeah, I have about uh, 15 in this one now.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's, um, I like the, she- so my blog is called Dares Boldly. And just yeah. a funny story about the, the title of the series. I'm uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of a, a title for it. I know it has to have dares boldly in it, but I'm thinking, oh, she dares. Or it had to have dares in it. Oh, she dares. Or um, yes, she dares. or And oh, she dares is after this cookbook that is fabulous, which is Oh, She Glows. And I thought, oh, I'm going yeah. to do a play on words because I'm so clever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm talking to my daughter in Vancouver, who is an incredible incredible writer and a very very wise woman and i was telling her i just can't think of the title you know i've got this i've got this and this and she just sort of goes well why don't you just call it she dares boldly Went, oh there it is oh (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah it's right in front of me (laughs) but isn't that true of so much of life it's right in front of us but we're trying to make it more difficult
0: so louise as we talk about your recovery from this um, horrific period of your life. And it feels like the rising of the phoenix from the ashes, <laughs> where the phoenix that, ar- that arises is more powerful than ever it was before. Because really, you've come out of this with a strength that you're able actually, in your work and in your life, you're able to inspire and assist others. So the overarching word I have for your story is Resilience. There was something that was not killed within you by the person who took your life for four and a half years. That there was some. Let's just talk a little bit about your understanding of resilience. I want to know, is this something in everybody? Is this something that some people are more gifted uh, with? Um, are there ways to draw on our deepest resources to find our own resilience? How does, in your experience, how does... Resilience work.
1: You said at the beginning of that question was about something was ki- was killed or not killed within that, that something, and the thing that popped into my head immediately was is that you can never kill love. You can't kill love, mm-hmm. and even after we die and are gone from this world, love is what remains. It's what carried us mm-hmm. into this world. And it's what carries us out of this world, and it is all that we can leave behind. And so yeah. for me, yes, I believe, because we were all born at this. I think the seed that is in all of us is the seed of love. We are an expression of love. It's just we all have mm-hmm. different expressions of how that love manifests itself in this world. And, and I think that the resilience piece, it's an interesting, I had looked up the definition, and, and it's the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties. Um, and I agree with you. I have come out of it stronger, not because of what he did, but because of how I chose to heal and yeah. choosing to heal in love could only deepen love.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. And so ultimately my, my belief in love and the wonder and awe in life and Learning to love myself as a woman who deserted her children, Mm. that was tough. But I remember saying shortly after he was arrested, saying to myself, I will never forgive myself for what I did to my daughters. And then I stopped and thought, wait a minute, if I want them to forgive me, but I'm saying I'm unworthy of my own forgiveness, then how on earth are they ever going to feel... Like I'm worthy of any forgiveness, and yeah. and whether or not they forgive me, I had to let go of wanting their forgiveness to allow myself to earn my own forgiveness. Yeah. And so I had to work on forgiving myself first. And forgiveness is the is the gateway to gratitude, and gratitude is the great way gateway to love, in my
0: book. And and at each juncture, there is it, it feels to me that there is a choice to be made. Like you made a choice and you decided, I'm not going to go down the road of anger and recrimination. What happened happened because if I go down that road, it takes me towards darkness and hate. I'm going to choose to go this other route. Uh, route, um, But at each point, it's like there's a choice to be made that I choose to love myself. I choose to forgive myself. I choose, that, that And I wonder the extent to which resilience isn't found in that ability— to make the choice. Because as long as we mm. feel we have no choice, we remain victims one way or another. And, and what you're describing is, no, there's a radical freedom in that to say, I can choose. I mm-hmm. can choose what to do here. Is that right? Does that sound right?
1: Yeah. I mean, we tell ourselves we have no choice. Yeah. Just as we tell ourselves, I can't believe that happened. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or I can't believe yeah. we do that. Um, yeah. Or I can't believe that I can do that. You know, And I'm going to just segue a little bit. It's like painting for me up until my mid-40s, I was a writer, but I had no artistic talent. I was not a painter. I was not an artist. And my eldest daughter, who's a phenomenal artist, she was about 15, 16 at the time, and she asked one day, and I was in this relationship at that time. Like, this was getting... Oh, it was probably about three years into that relationship when this happened. And... She had asked if we could go buy some canvas because she wanted to paint, and I said, sure. And so we went to the art shop, we bought some canvas and stuff and came home, and I said, much to my own surprise, oh, I think I'll paint with you. And I started to paint with her. And it taught me two things. One was a lesson she taught me, which was we were working with acrylics, and there was something I was painting, and I just said, oh, this is awful. And she said, "That's a nice thing about acrylics, well, Mom. You don't like it. Just paint over it. Paint over and, it. Yeah, and I thought, oh, that's cool. And, and the understory, the underpainting informs the outer in the end, always. Uh, yeah. But the other thing it taught me was, wow. So I have told myself all my life, I am not an artist. And I am actually, I've got some creative, you know, I've got some talent here. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, how many other things in my life have I said I can't do or I am not without ever testing the belief? And so I think the resilience piece is when we learn to test the the limits we put on ourselves, when we learn to question this comfort zone enough that we allow ourselves to keep pushing those limits, to keep Moving out yeah. of, and and we you know resilience to me is sort of like an elastic, you know, like you pull it and it snaps back, but the more you pull it, the less it snaps back, and mm. you know there's value in not snapping all the way back. There is great value in my not having returned to the original form of yeah. who I was before that relationship.
0: Yeah. Great value. And you've been changed. You've been changed. Oh, uh, yeah. In, in in the direction of becoming a more persistent self, yeah. like a stronger self. Yeah, yeah. It, it, That would be the tragedy, is if after all that, you simply went back to being the gal you were before.
1: Yeah. But yeah. You weren't, you're not. No. And, and, and I think that's the gift.
0: Louise, what a, this would be a very hopeful place for us to just leave it there. Yeah. Um, because the healing has been a clear and it's ongoing. It also is, without putting too much on you, inspirational. And I know that that's true from the comments you get on your in your blog, and the comments you get when you put poetry out, when you put your artwork out, that it is inspirational. Because pe- especially if people know something about the depths from which that has come, mm-hmm. um, if people wanted to be, if they wanted to, to to follow your blog or learn more about your work or or even be in touch with you, what are the best ways for them to do that? Well,
1: just going to my blog, thereboldly.com. dot com is the com, and
0: I'll put this in the show notes as well and yeah. how else.
1: Um, and they can email me at louise.luisegallagher.ca. I love emails. Okay. I mean it's easy to find me online. You just uh, Google my name.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's and one there thing you
1: about <laughs> having written the blog since 2007. There I am.
0: <laughs> Louise, thank you for speaking with me and and especially for the courage and the willingness to entrust me and the listeners with your story. That Somehow in sharing it, uh, we're seeing the light as well as the darkness, and we're seeing the strength you know, coming, coming out of that. So my thanks to you for being with me in the cave.
1: Well, the cave is a beautiful place, Brian. And what's beautiful about the cave is that it's a cave of lightness, right? Like it's a yeah, cave that yeah. just, that, that, you know, there's that fire burning, and we can all gather around that fire and bathe in the light and share in it and then go turn our, turn our outwards. And That's right. take the light with us. Thanks. Thank you, Louise. <laughs> okay, Brian.
0: If you've been moved by Louise's story of spiritual resilience, you may want to contact her directly. You can do that by writing to her, care of her webpage, which is listed in the show notes. You may want to leave a comment in the mystic cave facebook group which might prompt others to do the same and as always you can write to me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com sometimes our adversaries are the bullies who beat us up and take away our dignity leaving us feeling small and insecure but what if those adversaries We're not people at all, but rather, our own inner demons. Next time, we'll hear Alan Cooper's story. He was finally creating a life of his own, far from the smothering dynamics of his family. He was 25, living in Japan, teaching junior high, and gathering the credentials for one day becoming a bona fide translator. Then... He suffered his first bipolar manic episode and found himself in a psychiatric ward back in Calgary. It was the end of all his dreams, except that it wasn't. Alan's resilience revealed to him another world, another life, one that opened to new possibilities. I hope you'll join me for his inspirational story. Until then, I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave.